lost a loved one recently? Do you find it hard to move on with your life? There are lots of questions and a quest for a solution. Where do you start? Welcome to From Morning to Morning with your host, Rabbi Mel Glazer. Rabbi Mel and his guests are here to guide you through the different stages of grief and help you heal from your loss. You'll come away with a much better understanding of how you can move forward. Now, here's Rabbi Mel. Well, good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, or wherever you all are. Uh, this is Rabbi Mel Glazer. I'm back. I hope you missed me last week as much as I missed you, but I am back. I promised you I'd be back, and here I am. This is uh, From Morning to Morning, which continues to teach you the lesson that I want you to learn, and that is that you can move from loss of a loved one to joy to moving on to a new life from morning to morning. So I have a wonderful, wonderful guest uh, on the show. Her name is Shelby Carillon. And uh, she, she used to be called a doula, a death doula. Now, y'all know what a doula is? I only say y'all because she's in Richmond, Virginia, <laughs> and she understands the accent. And I'm an Atlanta boy, so we don't have any accents here. Right, Shelby? We got no Oh, accent. yes, of course. No accent. So a doula, when I learned the word doula, it was about a birth doula. That it was, it was somebody that, like a coach who was... Uh, helping the mother give birth. She was a birthing coach. Well, the term has gone from birth to death. Some people say it's the flip side of the same thing. Or that some people say that when you die, you are born into another place. And that could very well be. I don't know. We don't have any proof. But as I keep saying, that's what faith is. Faith is when you believe in something, even though all the facts are not yet in. So the term doula is now recognized not only as a birth doula, but as a death doula. That is, uh, a death doula is somebody who comes in, and most of them are women, and we'll talk about that in a minute, who is in the room with somebody who is dying, spends a lot of time with them and their families, and makes it more comfortable and more honest and more empathic uh, for them to die and leave this world. Shelby, is that about right? You did great. Well, that's good. It's good to know. <laughs> I get some things, right? So, Shelby, why don't you um, talk about why you do what you do? Why I do what I do. And how you um, I was a nurse for, I am a nurse, I still am a nurse uh, for 18 years and in the intensive care unit. And probably about five years ago, and, and I talked to many, many nurses and healthcare providers. When I say this story, everybody nods. You see so many bad deaths over and over and over again. Um, now, of course, my view is from the ICU. Um, and when I say bad deaths, just people fighting it tooth and nail, the patients, the families. And then every once in a while you see one of those good deaths where it's very much parallel to the feeling 
in the room of birth. It's amazing, all-inspiring, and granted it's sad, but it is, there's just this feeling in the room, and it's a moving, wonderful feeling. And so you see one of those, and then you get a whole bunch of the bad ones. And I, I really wanted to start knowing why. Why can't everybody have a good one, and what's stopping people? And so I kind of marinated on it for a while, And then a friend of mine about three years ago, unexpectedly in her mid-40s, healthy as a horse, a runner, got diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. And it took her um, fairly quickly. And the family was, she had three children and obviously unexpected. And while they wanted to have her home and hospice was able to make that possible from a medical standpoint, her family, you know, gone are the days where people know how to labor death. You know, kind of a saying is you labor into this world and you labor out. It's not a moment. It is a passage that everyone goes through. And so families aren't used to that anymore. You know, years and centuries ago, you either lived in a multi-generational house or you lived rurally and you saw death. You had had to kill a chicken for dinner. So death was part of of life. And that's gone now from our society. And most people just see a death or a dead body at a funeral home that's dressed in makeup and looks nice. But when it comes to laboring with your loved one, they don't, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to do it. And so fast forward about till now, um, I read an article that they have death midwives in Canada and the Pacific Northwest primarily. And so about a year and a half ago, I got in contact with one, and she offered to be my mentor, and she kind of taught me the ropes. So I kind of blended my own history of nursing with what she taught me, and then I went through a program. There's numerous different kind of certification programs because this is a grassroots effort there's not there's multitude out there i went to one called inelda which is international end-of-life doula association they did a training class and i'm in the middle of finishing my certification for them um and i blended into my own my own being my own purpose and that's that's what i do now that's very interesting i didn't know that there were organizations that trained doulas so, yeah, it, like I said, it's just, as I say, the baby boomers, like, you know, 40 and 50 years ago, they right. took birthing back from, you know, Western, Western medicine. They said, you know, I'm not going to lay on my back. You're not going to cut me. My husband's going to be next to me. This is natural. Let me do what I do. Um, and so now they're facing the other part. They're facing their own deaths, and they're starting to say, I don't want to die like my mom and dad did, hooked up to chemo on their deathbed or lingering in a nursing home. Yes, I'm going to fight, if you want to use that word, or dance with whatever diagnosis I have. But in the end, like, I want to own this. Like, this is natural, and it's okay. Um, And so from that, they didn't know where to take it. And so then you have people like me coming and meeting them there. So now organizations are starting to train others so that we could be more of service. Um, So, yeah, so they're starting to slowly come out here and there. But they offer very different things. And in Canada, they use the word midwife, which I don't use for myself personally because the ones that I have spoke with, they, they do stem to stern. They do. They labor with the dying patient during the act of dying, through the death. They can pack the body in ice. And then we're talking like old school. Then they help keep right. the body in the home for two, three days. And then they act as a celebrant. And then they will help the family transport them to like a green burial site. And so they really do the whole nine, where I, as a doula, call myself a doula, I feel comfortable there because I do the active dying through the death with the family. Um, 
but everyone has their own, all the doulas have their own specialties or what they prefer. Um, and so you have to find one that really fits you. I have had several guests who have just, who have done just what you just said. That is, they encourage the family to do everything at home, to let their loved ones die at home in bed or on the couch. And then they, they wash him and um, cover him with a sheet, wrap him up in a sheet. And the only thing they need the funeral home for is, is for a hearse to transport him or her to wherever they're going to be buried. And the so funeral homes, the, the, the so we've, here, we've talked I don't about that many times. Than here is the funeral homes do the um, death certificate, so it's hard to do that. I, my understanding is America because the funeral homes are the ones who fill that important piece of paper out. Well, only if you let them. I mean, I'm told uh, here in Colorado, for example, that you don't need funeral directors. All you need is for a doctor to sign the death certificate. And then if you choose, and then the rest is really up to you. Now, most people, you know, they can't do it personally. It's too difficult for them. Yeah. So they call the third party and they, you know, they offload their responsibilities. And um, that's not the way it used to be. As you know, it used to be people would die at home and they would be cared for at home and they would be, uh, put in a coffin at home, mm-hmm. and they would be taken on, on the shoulders of their men friends and walked to the cemetery, and that's where they would be buried. It's very interesting. Yes, you're right. Everybody chooses to do what they will. Um, my listeners, I was talking to Shelby yesterday, right before I went into a hospital here in town, I got a phone call from somebody I didn't know. They were not members of my congregation. They were here visiting their son, who was 24 years old, and he was the victim of, of some addiction issues earlier in his life, and he went to rehab, and he thought he was done, but it turns out he wasn't. So they put him in a rehab uh, facility, and last week he decided to show his strength. So he got a hold of a bicycle, and they don't know how he did that. And he started bicycling really fast to show himself and to show others how strong he was. Or um, it, it could have been that he wanted to take his own life, that he just had enough. Anyway, he was on his bike, and he biked into a brick wall. And he fell and he had a stroke and there was brain damage and he was gone. And they took him to the hospital um, where I saw him yesterday and he was brain dead. There were no brain waves. But he had, uh, his heart was still beating on a ventilator because, or he was still breathing on a ventilator because he had said that he wanted to donate body parts. And I talked to Shelby about this yesterday, and she said, do not use the phrase pull the plug on it. <laughs> and she, you're absolutely right. I didn't. I didn't. 
because the more I thought about it, um, going up in the elevator to the second floor of the hospital, the more gross I thought that sounded and inhumane and, and really icky. And so I didn't do that. Rather, what I did was I, I touched him. I said the final Jewish prayers for him. I made his parents touch him, which they had been unable to do. It's very powerful when you touch someone who's no longer alive, as you know. Mm-hmm. We do it all the time. It's not a big deal. But for them, it was really tough. And I made them do it. I took their hands and I put their hands on his hand. And I said, I want you to caress him. I want you to hold him. I want you to cuddle. I want you to, you know, say the words that, that, that I and everybody else who's in the grief business teaches about. I forgive you. I apologize to you. I thank you for whatever good times we had. I love you and goodbye, which is what I call laying them gently down. So I said, I don't need to be here for that, but you need to do it because you need to let him die. Anyway, so they, they kept him on the ventilator until tonight or tomorrow when they were going to disconnect. See, I did not say pull the plug. <laughs> they were going to disconnect the ventilator and immediately they would then um, give over his organs to whoever was... You know, in the, mm-hmm. and my job was to comfort them. And the only way I could do that was to tell them what a wonderful action, heroic action that was to donate parts of your body to keep other people alive. That he, even though he was no longer alive, parts of him would help others be alive. They should be proud of him for that. Yes. That's all I knew what to say. I mean, because I, I didn't know them, and I couldn't, I couldn't get into his life story, and I, and I didn't want to hear about his life story, but I wanted to give them comfort. So I was like, so "You're you're a death doula. You don't even know it." Well, that's what a doula does. did that, right? <laughs> but I think you touched on something that's really important that has lost in our culture is rituals and how important rituals are, not only for the dying but for the living and whatever your culture's rituals are, to touch them, to feel them, to acknowledge that this has happened. Um, you know, death is a sacred thing, and it is birth and death are on the same life spectrum, and they balance each other. But when you stop and think how much energy we put towards the birthing process and getting ready for the birth and the showers and everything else. And then you take a look at death and you realize how sterile we make it and how it's a medical experience in our culture, unfortunately. Um, and we could sit here and talk a lot about, you know, why, um, whether it's, you know, as a trend, America is not as religious as it used to be, and maybe that's where in the past clergies and rabbis and ministers and priests would kind of help that part. I don't know. But we've lost the idea of touch and rituals, which I think going to the, the grieving process, I think really help. Because grief needs to happen. It needs to change us. There's a purpose for grief. But gone mm-hmm. undone, that can lead, I'm sure, as you know, to depression. And so to start a ritual, and you can have multiple rituals where it's you're, you're doing a ritual when the act of dying process is beginning. Now I say act of dying, normally 
when the person has probably about three or four or less days of, of living, um, and it's pretty obvious even by the non-medical eye, and so you start a ritual for that. And when the patient passes, you have a ritual for that. And it's helped, it helps the living with closure and with grief and with helping the person who just died end that last chapter of that amazing book that they've been writing their entire life. When they die, put an exclamation point. The living need to be there and let the dying know that they have left a legacy. It was important what they did. Um, they don't have to be Nobel Peace Prize winners, but you were important, and you, um, this is sacred, and we're here. And so I'm so glad that you made those parents touch their son, if anything else, than to just perpetuate a ritual again that our society has really lost. We will be right back. we got to take a little break, and you and I will talk lots more tonight. We'll be right back, everybody. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hi, everybody. Rabbi Mel back with you. Um, my guest this evening is Shelby Carillon. She lives in Richmond. She's a nurse in the ICU, and she's a death doula, but she's not because I'm looking at a post of hers, which was written April 28, 2016, on her blog, which is called Peaceful Passing. And you can find, is that dot... Um, peaceful peaceful passings passing, with an S dot wordpress dot com. Peaceful passings. Okay. Peaceful passings. So read her stuff. She's great. So she talks about 
she writes a blog called My New Name. And she used to be a called a doula until she was servicing a family and they said uh, the lady who was her client renamed me. I'm going to read this paragraph. My last client renamed me. I started working with her in February and she passed peacefully and surrounded by her family last Wednesday. After one of the sessions back in March, she said she was not overly fond of the title of death doula, said it didn't capture who I was to her. She lovingly said I should call myself, you ready folks? An end of life transition coach. (laughs) That's pretty cool, Shelby. I realized how spot on she was. They taught you that phrase spot on in Richmond, Virginia? No, they did not. They don't talk like that in Richmond. When I step back, all my clients have truly used me during that time of treatment when the thoughts creep in about stopping therapy. The thoughts are sometimes just passing ideas, but ideas nonetheless. They find that when they voice these reflections with the doctors or families and friends, they are offered a pep talk. More treatment ideas ignored or suggested to contact hospice. Feelings of loneliness and guilt begin to grow. But that's not what Shelby does. Shelby talks straight with them. Shelby talks about death with them. Shelby talks about life with them. Shelby asks some things like, honey, what do you want your funeral to look like? I read an article today about a lady who is 103 years old. And she went to hospice with cancer. And two years ago, they told her she had six weeks to live. That was two years ago. Nice. And she's 103. And, right. And so because, because y'all do such a good job at hospice, so people live longer. But the problem is the insurance companies don't want to pay for it. There is they no, yeah, there's, there's not a whole weeks, lot of but, profit in death. Oh, well, yeah, that's right. So they, they kicked her out of hospice. Can you imagine they kicked this poor lady out of hospice. I was I was really torn up. I mean, that's really brutal. Because um, she's not medically, like I said, it's treated as a medical experience. So if medically I can't prove that you are on your way out, it doesn't matter if emotionally and spiritually you are starting to grieve the end of your life and look back. It, that, that doesn't matter because they're medical. And mm-hmm. so that ends. And then so these people are, are finding they don't know what to do with these thoughts. And their family, a lot of times, are going through anticipatory grief. And you know how the person who's dying doesn't want to bring it up to the family because they don't want to, like, burden them and make them sad. And the same goes to the family doesn't want to talk to the person who's dying because they don't want to think that they're giving up on them or, you know, I... they want the rest of their memories to be happy ones. So no one talks. Um, and it's really sad because, and unless you have had the grace to experience a beautiful death, a lot of my friends are like, when I describe death as beautiful and awesome and amazing, they, they think I, they think I must be on some drugs because it can be. Um, but, um, only if you talk about it and feel it and make it real, then you can achieve that. But you are with a family when somebody dies, you are on a high. Be- Is that a question or a statement? <laughs> because in the Jewish tradition, 
we have what we call a Hever Kadisha, men and women who prepare the dead bodies for burial. And we wash them, ones for physical cleanliness and ones for spiritual cleanliness. And then we, um, we apologize to them for if we made any mistakes that embarrassed them, we apologize. I don't know anybody apologizes to dead people, but we do. And then we dress them in a white shroud. Everybody gets the same white shroud. You don't wear clothes. You get the white shroud to symbolize that you can be rich, you can be poor. It doesn't make any difference. Everybody's going to die. There's a 100% guarantee. That's the only thing that's guaranteed in life. And we have those kind of rituals. Then we lift him up gently. Men do men and women do women. And we gently put them in the wooden coffin. And we take a dirt, uh, a bag of earth from the land of Israel. And we sprinkle it over their eyes and the rest of their body. And then we close the coffin and that's it. And then we sit with their body at the funeral hall all night until next day of the funeral. So I agree with you 100%. I mean, Jewish tradition has got loads of rituals involving death. And it adds so much meaning to the experience. And then after the funeral, you know, we'll we'll get together and, and go back to the home of the deceased, of the dead. And we will, of course, eat because that's what Jews do. <laughs> we do, we eat after, we don't pray until... We eat, but we got to eat after we pray. We got to eat after funerals. We eat after bar mitzvahs. We eat after everything. Why? Two reasons. One, because it's life. And two, I believe it's theological. That is, we symbolize that the community goes on, even without the one that we loved. We um, life goes on, as I like to say. The sun comes up tomorrow morning no matter what. And it's just such a powerful, for me, it's such a powerful symbol, you know, of life that we have these rituals that I'm just so, I'm overwhelmed sometimes. But we're never, you know, we're in a room for two hours preparing the dead. We're never uh, nervous. Once you do it once, as you know, uh, you can do it a hundred times more. The physical act is not, it, it's difficult sometimes if they weigh a lot, but it's not really difficult, it's not hard. Uh, what's hard is if you knew them, and I tend to know everybody that we prepare, or if it's a kid, you know, or if it's somebody who's been disfigured in a tragedy or in an accident, then it becomes very difficult. Otherwise, it's something we do. Mm-hmm. We don't. We don't tell anybody. You're allowed to say, according to Jewish tradition, you're allowed to to broadcast that you are a member of this group, but you are never allowed to say, "I prepared your mother," because when you do that, you then sh- then the daughter. Is now feels beholden to you. And we don't accept that. We will not accept it. Um, 
We do it anonymously. We do it because God tells us to do it. It's the highest mitzvah, the highest deed of loving kindness that we can possibly do. We don't get paid for it. God forbid. But we just can't talk about it. And so so we have to have a way of debriefing because, as you know, there's feelings. And you can't just hide your feelings and go home and get the clicker and turn on the TV and watch the ball game. Sure. You got to talk about it. So we do. We spend some time afterwards and we talk about it and ask if anybody has any emotional problems or issues or or whatever that come up. I don't know other, any other tradition except the Muslims. Uh, I don't know what the Hindus do. I hope they do some. I'm sure they do, but I don't know. The Muslims do almost exactly the same thing we do, which is so ironic and interesting. I claim that death is going to bring peace in the Middle East. Not only because we use the same rituals, just about exactly the same rituals. They wash their bodies, they wrap them in sheets. Sometimes they use coffins, sometimes they don't. In Israel, uh, the Jews sometimes use coffins, sometimes they don't. So we're like kindred souls, we're cousins, and we bury people the same way because we understand how important um, burial rituals, like you say, how important burial rituals are. Mm-hmm. I'm reading your um, your blog, uh, your your magazine article. My friend Shelby was written up in the Richmond Magazine, and I'm waiting for New York Times to find her, <laughs> which they will. They'll find her. But I'm, she was like interviewed by the Richmond Magazine, and one thing she says is, um. Wait, hold it. Oh, where is it? I can't take away the fact that you have to kneel in a mountain of sorrow, she, Shelby, says, paraphrasing end-of-life guru B.J. Miller. That can't be avoided, but what I can do, I'm very much like a birthing doula. I hold the space. What does that mean? I feel like it's such a cliche. Um, As I describe it, I want the family to be able to just be with their loved one. If it's the wife, I want the husband to just be there and be with her. And I don't want him to worry about um, how is this going? Should I turn her? Is Is she too hot? She's feeling really hot. Should I take the covers off her? And just the formality of laboring death. And so let me be there. Let me, let's do this. Do you want, do you want to get in bed with her? Let me pull her over, sit in bed with her. Um, my one patient, it was like, had been a yucky October and it was finally like miraculously this beautiful day. It was 70 degrees. And I came in and I was like, guys, I was like, let's open the windows. Like she loved the air. She loved her garden. Let's open the windows and let it breathe. And so it really lets the family experience the death. Let me do all the other little and sometimes it's even, let me prepare everybody tea. Have you guys eaten? Listen, you guys go, you know, lay down. You go sleep. Um, I kind of bring order to death, if you will, as chaotic as death can be. Um, 
my mentor in Canada, Sarah Kerr, she said, you know, we're the tour guides of death. She's like, you wouldn't go to like China and just kind of walk around. She's like, you'd go on a tour. She's like, we're like the bus drivers of death. And she's like, you just open the doors and be like, okay, everybody get on. And then they get on. And then they can say, have somebody there who's, I've experienced death for 18 years being a nurse. They can ask me questions. The patients, a lot of times the patients want to know, like, what's it like? Um, I've seen this, someone I knew did this. Is that how I'm going to die? Uh, most, most people I find are not afraid of death. They're afraid of suffering during the dying process. Right, correct. And so a lot of times the more I can coach them along, and sometimes it's as easy as one of my friends when the cancer had moved into her lungs, and this was a day or two before she was passing, she was obviously going through active dying. She started to expectorate which was basically the cancer. Um, and it was something new and different and scary for her. And so she started getting really upset and nervous. And she's like, this is different. We need to call, like, hospice. Like, and I could just see it, terror in her eyes. And I just said, I'm here. I'm here. And your body's doing what it naturally needs to do. I know you're scared, and I'm here for you. Um, and it's something that the husband who was right there, he just didn't know. And so it's kind of like... I've had three children. Even when I was laboring with my third, if I felt something funky, it was really good to have someone be like, it's okay, it's normal, you're fine. <laughs> it's the same thing with death. To just have someone say, you're doing a great job. Um, one of my families, the daughters of the families, were administering the morphine, and they were so scared that they were giving her too much or not enough. And so just for me to be like, you're doing a great job. She looks really comfortable. And, you know, she would grimace and they're like, and they're like I think I want to give her some more. It's like, you know what, why don't you? I think she, so just someone just to say, you're doing good. Um, where I had on the flip side, before I did this, a girlfriend of mine, her mother passed away about four or five years ago. And she is an only child. And her um, father at the time was not very involved uh, in her mother's passing. So she was really the sole person at her mother's deathbed. And to this day, she carries a lot of guilt that she killed her mother because she gave her too much morphine. And she's like, I don't know if I gave her enough or not enough. And I, I feel so sad that I couldn't have been there and said, you're doing okay. You're doing fine. Because hospice is wonderful. And I'm one of the biggest proponents of trying to get hospice involved before active dying comes. Get palliation in there. Let's get symptom control. But because they're stretched so thin, they can't be there all the time. Luckily, they can be on call. But sometimes it's nice to have eyes on the person and to sit with the family and cheer them on, explain things that they don't understand or things that are uncomfortable. Um, the death rattle, it's real. It doesn't happen to everybody, but it does happen. Um, and a lot of times there's not much you can do there's, other than sometimes positioning the patients or just letting the families know that it's the patient is really relaxed. And they're so relaxed, the soft muscles in their throat and their tongue are just relaxing against the back of their throat. So you hear it, but they're not in any distress and they're comfortable. And sometimes just hearing that, Let's the family breathe, and again, just being there and being with their loved ones done. So what you're saying is, is for me, uh, in a time where they have lost control, where everybody is losing control of, of their loved one's life, you're the, you're the coach who's coached this team 100 games, 100 times, and you walk around and you've got dignity and you've got certainty and you know exactly what's happening. And so you're the one who helps restore a bit of control to their lives when they've lost it. And it's so scary. It's, I mean, death is scary to everybody. And so I think I try to take some of that and alleviate it away and say, this is okay. This is natural. Let's experience it. Be present with it. 
be present in this moment and don't don't sit there worrying about oh my gosh you know did I do this okay you know do, should I should I clean her is her diaper dirty should, I, I'll help with that like <laughs> it's you just right. be there with her or him you give them confidence that everything is going to be okay even when she's dying yes well you can't do better than that I mean <laughs> you know so before we have to take a break it's going fast isn't it Shelby it is so I know it is so Shelby writes in her blog I want people to understand that death gets beautiful death is amazing and sometimes she says it feels just like birth and as I said before, there are religious traditions that say it is birth in another place. We're going to take a little break. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Everyone, Rabbi Mel Glazer back with my my new friend and guest Shelby Carillon, who is a end of life coach. She's a doula, a death doula. She gives people confidence when their loved ones are dying, and she gives them back some control in situations where control has been taken away. And we've all been there. Everybody listening to me has been there. Because every single one of you, every single one of you knows how scary it is when you're in the hospital or the hospice or even at home, somebody that you love is dying. And you don't know what it means and you don't know what to do and you don't, you don't know anything. You just don't know. Well, thank God 
There are people like Shelby who are devoting their lives. She's an ICU nurse, so she, you know, she sees people get better too, I hope. Yes, (laughs) yes, I do. (laughs) Yes, you do. Yes, thank God. But she sees a lot of people who go from ICU to either a hospice situation in the hospital, uh, and she's there with the family. How long do you stay with a family, Shelby? You know, every client's different. Um, I do want to point out that these are two separate jobs. I am an ICU nurse. I don't disclose that I'm a death doula in the community. It's my one of my jobs. And then my separate job is, an, is, is the death doula. And people have just found me through word of mouth. So I don't intermingle the two. Um, what was your question again? <laughs> Uh, how long do you, when, when you're in How long your, do I stay with the families? It really depends. Um, I've really learned, my envision when I first started this was I'd really be laboring at the bedside of the dying and, and being there with the families, you know, for hours on end. And what I'm finding through my clients is, first of all, all my clients come to me when they're still in treatment. Now, I will take any client with any terminal disease. It just so happens that every single one of them have been cancer. So when I speak of cancer, that's not the only one I do, but currently the majority of what I do. Um, so they're all currently going through chemotherapy or radiation or both and starting to say either I don't want this or what else is there or it's not helping. And so they seek me out and I sit there with them. And this is, I think, where the end-of-life transition coach <laughs> comes in is we sit there and we talk. And so most of my time, to answer your question in a really long way, is with my client in, in that time, sitting in their own hell, letting them realize their own eminent mortality. And once they realize this, um, and we have long dialogues about it, some we laugh about, sometimes there's tears. When the active dying process does begin, I find the family is so much more prepared that I have not really been needed at the bedside for hours on end. I come in for maybe maybe two or three hours, make sure they're comfortable, they have any questions, you know, help rearrange things, and then I kind of step back and watch the family take over. And then I pop in and out and see where I'm needed, and then normally once the death occurs, um, I'm called back out, and I come back out, and I, I serve to the family. I, I try to do rituals there, kind of a closing ritual of death, whether it's reading a poem, um, you know, sometimes their pastor or their minister is there and they want to do a blessing. So like one time, you know, the hospital bed was pushed against the wall and they're all standing there and they were going to pray. Um, and I said, whoa, whoa, wait, stop everybody. And it was a hospital bed, so I, it was on wheels, so I pushed it to the middle of the room. I was like, everybody, let's get around her. Mm-hmm. Everybody put your hands on her, hold her. And then the minister was able to give the closing blessing. And so sometimes I just help in closing rituals. Um, and so it really depends on the family. It depends on how long does the patient need me. I've, I've been with patients for two and three months, and I've been with patients for seven days before they died. So okay. it's different every case. Do you find that there are a lot of ministers who are as comf- uncomfortable as family members? Oh, more so, I would say it's very infrequent. I find someone who is comfortable with, they are prepared to do the typical hymns or the typical verses in the Bible for the dying, but as far as to sit there and labor with the families and touch the the dying person, the dead body, I do find it very 
less comfortable. Uh, I was talking I to some, some of my I, chaplains I at the hospital because I, I work at a, a teaching hospital, and so we have residents through seminary, and so I was asking them about, you know, what do you study? Do, they, do you guys have death and dying classes? Like, and they said, no, like our death and dying is on the job. I was like, really? That just shocked yeah. me that they don't really know how to labor with the dying other than what they've been, unless they've been exposed to it by their training. Or unless they have CPE and their chaplains and all that. Right. But I find the same thing. Most rabbis that I know wouldn't, wouldn't touch a dead body. I mean, I didn't want to touch a dead body. 45 years ago when I became a rabbi, I started out in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and somebody died, and I didn't, wasn't, had, had not been there long enough to know him. And the head of my group, who was younger than me, and I was only 29, and he was younger than I was, and he, he called me up, he said, Rabbi, Jack Goldstein died, we have to prepare him. I said, no, you have to prepare him, I don't do that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't forget it. It's like, you remember the show Quincy? Are you old enough to remember the show Quincy? No, unfortunately I'm not. Dr. Quincy was a, um, a criminal, I don't know what you call it. Um, he found out why they really died. And okay. the show started the same way. He had his interns with him. He had his staff around him. And they were in the room around a dead body that was covered up by a white sheet. And Quincy, who knew Jack Klugman, played him. And, and Quincy knew what was going to happen when he said the following, Okay, uncover the body. He uncovers the body and six of the ten fall flat and faint. <laughs> it was hilarious. Well, nobody teaches us how to be with death. Unless you're fortunate enough. Uh, by the way, I went with that guy and I we prepared the body. Of course there wasn't anybody else. And he had to be prepared according to Jewish law. So that's really where my physical training started. I didn't learn nothing in the seminary about how to do this. They didn't say a word, nothing. And because of that, there's a lot of hesitancy on the part of my colleagues to get involved. And I know this because I go to conferences every year of members of this group, the Hever Kedisha, which means Holy Society. And I ask that very question. I say, are your rabbis involved? Oh, no, they're too busy for that. <laughs> That's what I get. I said, boy, I wish I had nice congregants like you, like he does, you know, who yeah. me with that respect. I mean, the fact of the matter is, if it was important to him, he, he wouldn't be so busy. He would make it more important. But that's not my problem. But it is very interesting, which is why I asked you the question. Well, that and then, of course, in the south, I mean, like, I have seen prayers at the bedside in the hospital, so the person is still living. They are not dead. They are not, in, they are, but they are in the intensive care unit. And I have seen ministers and chaplains come in and give these prayers that death is the enemy, that the death is the devil. I mean, I've heard that, you know, the death is the devil, Lord Jesus. And I just wanted to be like, oh, 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 Lord. like, no, no, death is not the devil. Like, death is not the enemy. Death is part of life. It's beautiful. Right. And so when, when I hear sometimes people say that, it makes me want to shudder. Um, I had a woman who would not allow her husband to pass. He had cancer everywhere. And um, it was very obvious that this, this 
poor gentleman needed palliation, but she refused to give up. And I had gone in there, and we were talking, and I said, you know, um, at what point, I said, you know, sometimes in the medical field, you know, we have so many amazing technologies and things we can do to help save people, but when do we cross the line? When do we do too much that we're telling God, the universe, whatever you want to say, no, you can't have them. And, you know, what, is there a line? I was like, do you feel that there's a time when we're not allowing the higher being? Because she was very religious, it was her God, that we're not allowing God to do what he wants to? You know, are we stepping in? And so we're having this interesting discussion. And then she says, well, no. She said, you know, the devil made dying, and that's why God made the code cart. And I, I literally was yeah. speechless. I was like, wow, okay then. Okay, well, that's that. <laughs> Um, and it just made me sad. It made me sad that I couldn't honor this passing that her husband was having. It's hard because uh, theologically, if if I were if I were a Christian minister, you know, my funerals would be celebrations because if you've lived a good life, you're going to Jesus, right. So that's your reward. I've been to Christian funerals where, like you just talked about, first of all, you wouldn't know who he's burying because he didn't know who he was burying. He, like, read it out of a book, and 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 nobody told any story. My funerals are, everybody tells stories. I, I get three family members, and I say, I want you to tell us what you learned from Jack. I want you to tell us what you're going to remember about Jack. I want you to tell us, um, you can make us laugh, you can make us cry, it doesn't matter. But um, tell us, you know, tell us stuff. And they do. And people laugh. And people cry. And it's a normal kind of situation. I don't, I don't boo-hoo, boo-hoo. I mean, I'm sad. We're all sad because we don't want to lose him. But he's gone, so there's nothing you can do. He's just gone. And so uh, it's hard, and nobody teaches us how to lose in life. Yeah, yeah. Tell us how to get more, get more things in our lives, get more, um, own more things, buy more cars, buy bigger houses, uh, get more friends. Uh, to do more and and acquire, but nobody ever teaches us how to lose anything. And so when somebody dies, we are clueless. That's why and I wrote fight a, against it. That's why I wrote a book called a GPS for grief and dying. And yes, that was a commercial, ladies and gentlemen. It's published by <laughs> Kindle. Uh, you just go to Kindle or you Google GPS for grief and it will magically take you to my book which will talk about all the things that Shelby and I and all my previous guests have been talking about because nobody teaches us these things parents don't know when my daddy died they wouldn't let us kids go to the funeral because they were so afraid they wanted to protect us from the pain well now when I hear that Kids are, you know, parents don't want their kids to go to the grandparents' funerals. I get crazy. I say, you can't do that. 
You just can't do it. It's not yeah. fair. Well, I mean, you can. It's just kids participate in family events, and and you got to let them go to the cemetery. Period. Usually, I win because I'm the rabbi. (laughs) Not because they may think I'm right, but only because I because I'm the rabbi. But then, after the funeral's over, they know I'm right because the kids were part of it, and you know, in Israel. They use cemeteries as parks, and kids play in the parks. I think it's lovely. I think it is, but I'm trying to think of our modern-day society trying to embrace that thought. I think we're getting better. I think a lot more people are writing about death and doing what you and I do and talking about it and... Well, I, was, I mean, they've, they've coined it the conscious death movement. So, I mean, I believe there is, I hope there is starting to become a groundswell of movement. Like I said, just, you know, 40 and 50 years ago, people were, you know, the idea of bringing birth back into a home in the, like, 1950s was, like, preposterous. And now it's something that if a friend says, oh, yeah, I'm going to have a home birth, you're like, oh, that's pretty cool. Or I'm going to have my birth in my tub. So I'm hoping that it, we're slowly changing the paradigm that in... 20 years from now, that the idea that we don't have to do everything that medicine allows you to do, that you can say, you know, I, I'm good. Because unfortunately, we really have a lot of stuff we can do to do to people, not for people, but to two people. And yes, it really takes a person to say, you know what, we tried, but I'm good. I'm going to live the rest of my life. And my current client is that way. She could have done more chemo, but she's like, you know what, I'm good. I don't have any symptoms and I want to live my life the way I want to live it. And I'm right, hold on a second because yeah. we got to take another break, unfortunately. Oh, okay. Yes, we do. And we'll be right back. Oh, we're going to, no, we're done. Uh, okay, so <laughs> we are done. Aaron says we're done, my engineer. So I want to thank my friend Shelby Curlin um, for being with me. And if you want to get a hold of her, Shelby, tell them how to get a hold of you. Probably I have a couple of different ways. I'm on Facebook at Peaceful Passings, End of Life Doula, or um, PeacefulPassings.wordpress.com are probably the two easiest ways to get in touch with me. Okay. And if you want to get in touch with me, anybody, I am at Rabbi Mel at GriefOK.com. So thank you for listening, and we will see you again. Or you, <laughs> we won't see you again. We will be <laughs> together again next week. Bye, everybody. Thank you again for joining Rabbi Mel Glazer for From Morning to Morning. Please tune in again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're wishing you strength and hope in the next week.